Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Originally, I was asked to talk about Vesalius, um, Vesalius 501, uh, because, of course, his quincentenary was last year, and some people might argue where well, he was managed to be born in the early hours of the morning of the 1st of January, um, 15, um, sorry, 15, 1515. Um, so we're still in that commemorative period. And indeed, the discoveries about Vesalius this year by a variety of scholars have been quite remarkable. Uh, we've learnt a little bit more about some of his visits to Germany, uh, which were doubted by O'Malley in his great biography. Greek, Belgian, and Spanish scholars have been working on Vesalius's last days, that mysterious pilgrimage to Jerusalem, which ended up with him dying on a Greek island. And we know now that he went, there, went to Jerusalem on official business with the permission of the King of Spain to hand over the annual tribute to pay for the upkeep of the Christian sites in the Holy Land. We've learned a little more about the Fabrica, its illustrations, and its impact. And distinguished anatomists have commented about this or that aspect of his work. There has, of course, been a spate of publications, uh, not least this huge two-volume English translation of the Fabrica, not just the Fabrica of 1543, but the, the changes in the second edition, which were extensive, and some of the major changes in the notes that Vesalius wrote at the end of his life. But far more significant, in my view, was the reappearance in summer out of a bank vault in the United States of Vesalius's own copy of the Anatomical Principles Institutiones Anatomicae, which he published in 1538. This, had, this copy had last been seen in public in 1998, when it was sold in London at the sale of the books belonging to Haskell, uh, Haskell Norman. And it was bought by somebody. No idea who had bought it. Christie's refused uh, to let me know. They said it was a private individual. And my inquiries had got nowhere. Perhaps the biggest exhibition last year was held in Toronto, at the Fisher Library in Toronto, 
where the 1555 copy of the Fabrica is deposited. That's the annotated copy. And they put on an amazing exhibition of works to do with Vesalius. They had copies of everything that he wrote. They had copies of almost everything that one might wish to see. They had only three things that they would have liked to put on display that they did not. It was too expensive to, to fly the Cambridge University illustrated epitome over. Glasgow was using its, its copy of the sex the six anatomical plates, and New York Public Library, which owns the coloured copy of 1543 Fabrica, uh, also had it on display. But apart from that, they had this volume. And this is a picture taken from the Toronto Vesalius catalogue. A catalogue, alas, I think, now exhausted. It's a pity. It is Vesalius's own copy of the Institutiones Anatomicae. We don't know where it came from. It was sold in, uh, just before the Second World War to Haskell Norman by a Paris book dealer. And Norman's son said to me that his father never quite believed that these scribbles you can see at the bottom of the page were by Vesalius himself. Why? Because he felt the book dealer hadn't charged him enough. And he was always suspicious that this wasn't genuine. And I'm going to talk for most of my lecture about these notes and their importance for understanding Vesalius and the development of the Fabrica. I'm going to talk also very briefly about the other copy, the copy that is in Toronto, uh, the annotated edition of 1555, um, which is massively, massively annotated. But the 1538 Institutiones are really, it's a very small book, it's a very short book, and it has about 250 annotations. And I'm going to spend most of my time on what I call Vesalius revision of the Institutiones Anatomicae. I'm going to have a sort of scherzo on the costs of printing, the costs of revision, and I'm going to compare at the end some of these early notes with the notes that he wrote after 1555. But for those of you who are unfamiliar with the details of Vesalius's life uh, and the context in which I'm talking about, here is a very, very brief schematic description. He's born in 1514 in Brussels. He's the son of an imperial apothecary at the court of the Holy Roman Emperor. He's a wealthy man 
with wealthy contacts and also artistic contacts. He studies Latin and Greek in Brussels, and then he moves to study medicine in Louvain. Louvain, at this stage, is famous as a centre for classical humanist learning. Its medicine, I'm afraid, was a little behind the times. And so Vesalius moves on to study in Paris. And it's this period, the three years he spends in Paris, that, if you like, determines the rest of his career. Why? Because these are the years in which Galenic medicine, and I'll say a little bit about that later on, and in particular anatomy, takes hold. We have a whole series of student biographies from the middle late 1520s. These do not mention anatomy. There is not a single student who appears to be interested in anatomy. There are two who are interested in surgery. There are far more who are interested in medical astrology. Anatomy has no place. And suddenly, from 1529, Paris goes mad about anatomy. Younger members of the faculty start writing books on anatomy. They dissect, they lecture. Everybody suddenly becomes passionate about anatomy. We know from a contemporary of how students clambered through windows, trampled over gardens to get into the front seats so that they could see something being dissected. It was an exciting period, and Vesalius is at the heart of it. Because he is a man with incredible talent with a knife. And as we will also see, he has an incredible eye. He leaves Paris in 1536 to go back to Louvain because there's about to be a war between the King of France and the Holy Roman Emperor. He graduates at Louvain in 1537 with a thesis on an Arabic doctor, Razis, and I'll say a little bit about that later. He graduates, there's a mysterious period about which we know very little, and then he reappears in Padua at the end of 1537 to gain medical experience, possibly in the hospital, certainly in Venice, he graduates with a doctorate in 1538 and immediately is employed by the university to teach anatomy and surgery. And he stays there until, well, 1542 he leaves for Basel. Whether he fully intended to come back is not clear. 
Uh, he becomes a doctor to the Holy Roman Emperor in 1543. He reappears in Padua, presumably to collect his belongings. But effectively, he's moved to become an imperial doctor. People often ask me, why did he become an imperial doctor? And there's a very simple answer, money. Uh, if you are going to be private physician to the, the most important monarch in the world, you're going to be paid a hell of a lot more than if you're a professor. And the same thing goes today. <laughs> in Basel, from probably 1539, certainly 1540, he begins to write up his great work on anatomy, on, on the fabric of the human body, finished almost entirely by, the end, by 1542 when he goes to Basel, published in 1543, second edition, 1555. But he leaves academic life and for the rest of the next 20 years our information on him is scattered about diplomatic archives and so on. And he returns uh, from the Holy Land in 1564 and dies either on a Greek beach or at the gates of the town of Zakynthos. The crucial period is really from 1537 to 1542. That is the period at which the Fabrica, this great book you can see in the display cases, took place. He is a young man in a hurry. He's only, he's only in his 20s when he becomes professor in Padua. He writes his book when he's 28. He was a young man in a hurry who didn't care for his colleagues. He was no respecter of, his, of persons at all, except possibly the emperor. Um, and one of his competitors, a man called Nicola Massa, uh, writing an introductory text on anatomy, complained um, that basically the fabrica, he said, is only telling what we all knew. All of us, the new anatomists, knew that Galen was wrong. We all knew you got to correct Galen. And indeed, he said, I would have loved, I could have written the Fabrica, except that Vesalius is a bachelor, and I've got a wife, several children, and a medical practice, and I really just didn't have the time. You can explain the Fabrica in so many different ways. But one should also note that throughout his life, Vesalius is also very good at disguising his debts to others. Now, modern historians have sort of, on the whole, dismissed other people's criticisms of, of Vesalius as misguided. But they've always been very critical of his treatment of his teacher in Paris, a man called Johann Günther von Andernach. And in particular, 
of Vesalius's publication of a second edition of Gwinter's little anatomical textbook. It was originally printed uh, in Paris in 1536. It was instantly republished in Basel by Lazius and Plato, and this is a copy of the, uh, the Basel reprinting. In his book, and it's a very tiny book, it's only about... Well, it fits into a pocket, I can tell you. I know, because I once walked out of the welcome with it in my pocket. Um, <laughs> it was a student textbook of anatomical principles according to Galen for students of medicine, produced in Paris in 1536. Vesalius is mentioned. Vesalius is described in it as a very learned and a very good anatomist who helped Gwinter in what seems to be his public dis dissections. But in 1538, Vesalius publishes his own revised edition. And here is, the fun here is the title page. What should you notice straight away? And that is that the name of Gwinter comes down into lowercase letters and the name that is in capital letters is Andreas Wesalius. It is a substantial revision of Gwinter's book. It was published in 1538, just after Vesalius began teaching in Padua. In the preface, he says, Gwinter is a most kind and learned man, but the whole book is represented as Vesalius's own. He is the name in capital letters. His justification for this is twofold. He says, there were a large number of printer's errors that required correction. Yes, but Bernardino's printing is even worse than the Parisian. And secondly, he said, many people, many people have come up to me and asked me to revise it, which is a little disingenuous since he'd only started teaching a couple of months before. Gwinter at first reacts magnanimously. He accepts many of Vesalius's corrections in his own revision and he keeps the passage in, uh, of praising Vesalius in the later editions of his own book. Others, of course, and they include Vesalius's own contemporaries and modern scholars, were less than generous. And they all, if you like, regard this as an example of 
Vesalius's eye for the main chance. Almost as soon as the book was published, he began a revision for a further edition. Now, the first question really is, are these notes by Vesalius? They are. There is the same hand as in the Toronto notes, give or take 20 years. There was the same method of annotation. And there is a sentence in the preface, which Vesalius adds to my very learned and very kind Gwinter, which says, I devoted myself to assisting him in his anatomies, both in public and in private. Now, we knew that Vesalius helped Gwinter in public, in that annual or more than annual dissection for students. We didn't know until this note that he'd also acted as dissector for the little group of conoscenti students whom, whom Gwinter assembled, perhaps even in his own house. And you can, if you like, interpret this note either as being sort of explaining his relationship to Gwinter or as saying, look, Gwinter wrote this book, but I did the real work. This is really mine. And so I've no shame in putting my name in capital letters. What's the sort of thing that um, he does? Um, well, he changes a few words uh, at the bottom here. Um, he changes the, 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 you can see the word usque in the bottom left-hand corner. I think it's brevi usque. And changes a few words. Um, I'm afraid I've only a small number of slides of this to show you um, because the owner uh, didn't want to have uh, many photographs taken when it was in Toronto and I was able to see it in Toronto. So I've only got half a dozen slides. Um, when it was on display in Toronto, I was allowed to see it, um, work on it for most of my Toronto stay, which is effectively a day and a bit. Um, and the owner's given me permission first to talk about it, uh, and then to publish something about it, uh, and I hope in the end uh, that when I'm going to produce either a facsimile or a translation with details of all the notes that Vesalius uh, adds, but as far as today is concerned, I'm going to give you, if you like, some of the, uh, the juicier bits. I think uh, here you can possibly see uh, in the margins you have a few notes and squiggles. Um, on the top right, you have the word falso. Um, and the translation is this membrane, um, which... Uh, is, he says, is, um, 
holds in the flesh in the body um, has been doubted by many people because of their ignorance and they say that it is it doesn't can't be found in animals this is an addition that he Vesalius made in 1538 and he adds falso falsely to his notes sort of emphasizing the ignorance of his competitors these notes were originally intended for publication uh, he uses standard printers correcting marks and on three occasions uh, he addresses the printer directly uh, he says that um, he makes a mark at one point on page 10 and says that um, the, words he the words are an error by certain people relating to the tunics of the lower abdomen, um, an error produced by their ignorance of the peritoneum. And he says, add this, but I, I tried to write it in the margin, and you can see he began. And then he says, I couldn't put the words in the margin. On another page, he says, if there's a space in the margin, I want you to add a section which talks about a mistranslation of the word for the jejunum. Or the, which he says Gwinter, I think, had got wrong. Unfortunately, I've been unable to find that particular passage. But he says to the printer, please place it in the margin if you can. And on the third note, which you've already seen at the bottom here, he says he wants a comment to be placed in the margin showing that Galen was in error, or rather that Galen was indecisive. And he says in book four of the anatomical procedures, Galen left out four of the muscles of the lips, but in book one of Deus Partium, he only left out two. Please put this in the margin. He's intending this to be published. He's intending it to be used as Gwinter's book had done, been, as a sort of book to bring along as a student, to use while watching the dissection. Because in another note, he says, if you look carefully, you can see the seminal vesicles. If you look, clearly aiming at a new audience. He's intending to at least to start with by planning a new edition. None of the changes appeared in any later edition of this book, whether we're talking about Vesalius' own revision or 
Gwinter's own revision. And there are several reasons why I think this book was never handed to the public. And the first, and this is, I think, what these notes tell us, is that Berzelius is beginning to change his mind. He's beginning to change his mind about various aspects of Galenic anatomy. He's beginning to move from being a, Gal a Galenist anatomist who writes a book of anatomical principles according to Galen. When does he change his mind? Can we date the notes? Well, I shall show you in a minute that we certainly can to a, to a certain extent. The notes seem to me to definitely to be written before 1542, and I strongly believe that most of the notes are written before 1540. That is to say, 1538, 1539. It would fit with what Vesalius did with his own paraphrase of Razi's. The first edition, his student thesis, published in Louvain, a revised edition, published with his consent in Basel, no more than six weeks later. Clearly, Vesalius is correcting his original printing, even while it was being with the publisher. Between, let us say, he received his proofs and the book actually appeared in print. So I think that what happens is he starts writing these notes soon after his book is published. Certainly I would think 1538 1539. Most of these notes, all these notes are in the same hand. There are some which are slightly later than others. But you can tell by difference of handwriting or where they go on the page. But the notes are all, I think, contemporary within two or three years. Why I think he's changing his mind is that we have some small, very small changes, very small additions, which seem to me to mark a movement away. One of them which may, in, in a sense, oppose this dating of 1538-39, um, is a passage in which he talks about water found in the pericardium. Galen had argued that water, there was always a certain amount of moisture in the pericardium, in the living. And it was essential to keep the pericardium moist because the heart is hot 
And so you need something to, if you like, dampen down the pericardium. Gwinter repeated it, and so did Vesalius in 1538. And then he adds the bottom of the page, this note, some say it is not found in the living. Who are some? If you look at Realo Colombo's much later book on anatomy, he identifies one of the nonuli as Matteo Corti. Matteo Corti was professor in Bologna, distinguished Galenist, the wealthiest and best paid professor in the whole of Italy, and a leading Galenist anatomist. In 1540, Vesalius is invited to come to Bologna to perform a dissection to accompany Corti's lectures on Mondino's anatomy. And we have the student copy of Corti's lectures and Vesalius's demonstration. In this demonstration, in this lecture, and in earlier lectures, Corti says that normally water is not found, moisture is not found in the pericardium, but only abnormally. It's a sign of some defect in the heart. When you open it up, you can see water in the heart, but that is because there has been some malfunction. That's Corti's view. He doesn't quite deny it. He says it occurs only abnormally. The second group, which are mentioned specifically by Corti in the lecture and by Vesalius in the Fabrica in 1543, are those people who think that on death the spirits in the body, and don't forget there are spirits, animal spirits, in the heart, are changed into water at the moment of death. This is a view that in 1543 Vesalius opposes. He says so here, in a sense. But he also, in 1543, writes a very, very, very long section on this point, not least because there was a theological trap. And he says, I don't want to go any further when people talk about spirits being changed into water upon death, because it then is going to feel like trespass on theological matters because of that theological question, which is what was the water that came from the side of the crucified Christ? It's a theological trap, 
And don't forget, this is the period of the Inquisition. And <coughs> in the 1530s, early 1540s, it's a period at which people are getting extremely worried in Venice and North Italy. 1555, most of this section is deleted, the second edition. Interestingly, also in 1540 and in 1543, Vesalius reports <coughs> many experiments he's carried out on animals and experiments or his experiences with humans shortly before dying. When he said, I did indeed find moisture in their hearts. But I am, in 1543 and in 1540, he says, I am not going so far as to deny the possibility <coughs> that water is not found in the living. Is this a reference to his debate with Corti? In other words, is it a note of 1540-1541? Possible. It's also, I think, something where people could have said to him, well, of course, you know that Professor Corti disagrees, because immediately, uh, this is one of the things that Vesalius seems to mention to Corti as a point at which he knows that they are going to disagree in their debate. Unfortunately, I say I apologize, I haven't got a slide of this. We'll take another one. This curious note at the top of the page on your left which says, this has never been, in, I translate, this has never been noticed by anybody before. What is this? It took me a long while to work this one out. Uh, actually, it's two, the, the squiggle in the margin is also part of a different note, which is what confused me. Here in 1538, Vesalius added to Gwinter's Instituciones the comment that underneath the skull, underneath the scalp, rather, you can go down, you find something which is on top of the skull, which is the periosteum. And he says this is different from what people call the pericranium. And in his revised notes, he adds, and this has never before been noted. <coughs> in other words, what Vesalius claims to have found are two layers of the skull beneath the actual skin, and skin and flesh. If you look at, uh, well, all previous anatomists, as far as I can tell, say we have a layer of skin, flesh, and the pericranium. Vesalius 
in the fabrica and in the lectures, says we have flesh, we have, we have skin, flesh, another layer, and at the bottom, the true periosteum. What's he talking about? It's very complicated, um, both here and in the fabrica. And Charles Singer, in his translation of Vesalius and the Brain, got it 100% wrong. And I think that what he's doing is that what people see is the gallia, the aponeurosis, that sort of membrane-like thing that you can see beneath the flesh or the scalp. And Vesalius, I think, scrapes this away to see the actual true membrane that surrounds the bone, the true pericranium, the true periosteum. This, if I'm right, is something that Vesalius discovers, 1537-1538, something he's more and more convinced about, and here in this note he emphasizes it. There's also a whole series of other little additions and changes. Um, there's something on, for instance, the muscles, where he adds uh, the muscles of the arm, where he adds a comment to what he himself had originally written in 1538. There's, he deletes, for instance, a passage on the uterus. He deletes a passage he'd included about veins in the cervix. I think uh, he... he that one has these little changes. And then, and then, we have larger, larger sections deleted. At the end of the book, in the last 20 pages, and particularly in the last five, instead of adding written comments, we find sentences, even a paragraph, simply crossed out, particularly when we're dealing with the muscles and tendons in the arm and leg, on which Vesalius says an enormous amount in the fabrica. And I think that what is happening here is that he's going through correcting what he'd earlier said and is discovering that you cannot fit this sort of correction into the small format of an undergraduate treatise. Now, this at first sight, he's moving away from Galen, but this at first sight also contradicts another little uh, point. You can probably see in the right-hand margin the, letter, the number 89, and there are a whole series of numbers, particularly in the last half of the book, 
which are simply given in the form 89, and in fact I can tell you that the cropping of the margin probably destroyed the letter A. He originally wrote 89A. These references are not to his, the edition that he wrote, he, he was responsible for in 1541-1542. They're references to uh, Deus partium and to anatomical procedures, use of parts and anatomical procedures, one of which was printed in Basel, Anatomical Procedures, in 1531, and the second is Gwinter's translation of On the Use of Parts. All the references, almost all the references, are accurate. There are a couple that I think are not, but that may simply be I've misunderstood the exact import of the line he's, where they are on. Incidentally, all the passages that are cited in this way are found in the Fabrica at greater length. And here we have 89, and in that bottom left-hand corner, you can just about make out, if you're very clever and you feel very close, um, it's a reference to Galen's Art of Medicine, a chapter in it in which he talks about the natural shape of the skull, which is mentioned in that bottom line. None of these notes, none of these notes appear in the Cessa 1538-1540 reprint. And I think that they are private aid memoir. You can't understand it. If I said to you 37B, you wouldn't be able to make out what I'm talking about. These are private notes. And they tell us that at some point, Vesalius stopped thinking in terms of a published revision and had moved on to other things. My view, for what it's worth, is that some of these texts, and particularly the last 20 pages, are the point at which Vesalius stops being a Galenist anatomist and decides to write the Fabrica. Now that's a big exaggeration, I know. But I think what we've got in these notes is that move away from a model suggested by somebody else to his own writings. Now for the scherzo. History of both Gwinter's copy book and uh, Vesalius is extraordinarily complex. We don't know when, for instance, this second printing was done. Was it 1538 or was it 1540? But I want to raise one little question. Vesalius, in the paraph in the his paraphrase of Razi's and in this book is clearly intending to reproduce, to have a second edition. 
This is extraordinarily rare. I cannot find, as far as I'm concerned, any example at this date of an author agreeing to publish a revision of his own book within a short period of time. There are reissues by printers. A printer in Lyon will republish a book in Basel, from Basel. But somebody who is constantly looking to reprint, re-edit his own book is unusual. One can find perhaps examples in collections of letters where second, third editions are produced by adding other blocks of letters at the end. But that's not quite the same as somebody revising, recorrecting, re-editing his own book. And as we've seen, if you like, editing a book not once but twice. And he does this for the fabrica. He does this for that hugely expensive production. And I think it's also part of Berzelius' awareness of what print can do. That second edition cost a hell of a lot of money, most of which, I'm convinced, was put up by Berzelius himself. The Fabrica is a work of art. There's only one book like it, published before the Fabrica, the Basel printing of Fuchs's Herbal. And when Operinus received the Fabrica to print, this gave him an opportunity to break into the mainstream. The Fabrica made Vesalius's name. It also made the name of his publisher. And there's no other book that goes through revisions like the Fabrica until we come on to Mattioli's Herbal from the late 1550s onwards. Uh, and I love giving... I, this is totally irrelevant, but this is one of my most love, favourite pictures, the bone-breaking bird who attacks a pelican by dropping stones on it. Um, it's part of this series of revisions of Mattioli from the 1560s. Vesalius is doing this in the 1540s. 1538, 1540. And he's doing this in the Fabrica with his own illustrations, his notes on the Fabrica, his references to books, texts, and so on that he's correcting. Just look at the number of corrections he's making to the Fabrica after the second edition. They're page after page. I'm just running through a series of consecutive pages, all of which demand changes, all of which demand money. And the one thing I'm convinced about is that when, if Operinus had heard 
that Vesalius was thinking of producing another edition <coughs> of the Fabrica, he would have been scared to death. These things cost money. And it's one thing to reprint a small student, student book, 120 pages, 140 pages long, <coughs> a short duodecimo book for an audience that's going to be constantly renewed. Law texts, theological texts, are being constantly reprinted and reissued in up-to-date editions. So you have a student market. The Fabrica is an entirely different <coughs> kettle of fish. And what, how the owner is, the printer is going to deal with Vesalius's instructions like this, in which he's told how to put a collection into one of those illustrations. When you've let, when you've inserted a sliver of wood, let the letter N replace OU. It's probably Vesalius' handwriting was at fault at the start. Or look at this, which demands a complete recutting of an illustration. Opolinus still had the blocks. And other... I could go on with the sort of illustration. I've showed some people here um, some of these, these illustrations, these collections before. This is the organ of smell. Words change. Plates changed. And just look, this is blown up to a considerable extent. And you can just see at the end of that line a tiny, tiny outline, a gap in the outline of the toe, which Vesalius wants to be filled. And Vesalius redraws that bit of outline. I said at the start, Vesalius has an incredible eye. His annotations, like this, show it. I couldn't see some of these changes until I blew them up onto my computer three or four times the size. And, of course, he continues to erase, change things right through to the very end. What do these new notes add then? They add, first of all, further information about Vesalius as a corrector. Vesalius is obsessive. I think we've got to say that. He wants to get things right. He rereads his own work. He's constantly, constantly reading, thinking, changing things, sometimes for reasons that we might think trivial. He's constantly looking, doing the proof correction, and those of us who do a fair amount of proof correction are uh, 
must stand in awe of Vesalius's ability to see little things. Would you as an editor know the difference between a damaged comma and a full stop in a page of 30 lines or indeed in the fabric of 60 lines? I wouldn't. Would you be able to see the difference between periosteos, which is what he wants, and periostros, which is what was the original? A tiny change. Vesalius's eye and his obsession with getting it right stands out also in these new notes. But perhaps the real crucial thing, and I've been working on these notes for the last year, and I'm getting more and more convinced, is that the truth, these notes are part of that movement away from Vesalius as the Galenist, Vesalius as the dutiful student of Gwinter, Vesalius as somebody brought up in Paris to revere Galen's anatomy, and indeed to publish a book called Anatomical Principles According to the Opinion of Galen. No more than four years later, and it's possibly earlier, he has changed his focus. He has become the Vesalian anatomist. And this is why I think these notes are so crucial. They show you the change, and they show you with those marginal references Passages that he's going to discuss at greater length in the Fabrica, caused by a revision, a rewriting, a going back to Galen. I've been fortunate. Toronto managed to get permission for me to see these notes. I've, the owner has given me permission to talk about them. And it really has been a privilege to be able to do this and also to show you some of them this evening. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk backslash heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.